Welcome to this Lunar Society podcast and to the 2019 Sir Adrian Cabri Lecture, kindly supported by the George Cabri Fund and Aston University in Birmingham. Our guest speaker this year is Meg Hillier, MP for Hackney South and Shoreditch and Chair of the Public Accounts Committee, and she speaks to holding government to account. The welcome is given by Professor Alec Cameron, Vice-Chancellor of Aston University, and then the introduction by the Right Honourable Jackie Smith, Chair of the Lunar Society. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the third Sir Adrian Cadbury Lecture. My name is Alec Cameron, I'm the Vice-Chancellor of Aston University. It's my great pleasure to be able to welcome you to the University, welcome you to this annual Lunar Society event. Um, and as I said, what I, what I wanted to do just in, in commencing was just to make a couple, say a couple of words about Sir Adrian Cadbury and why this lecture is named after him. And then I will be introducing in turn Jackie Smith, uh, who is the chair of the Lunar Society, who in turn will introduce our guest speaker for this evening. So once again, it's, it's my great pleasure to welcome all the friends of the Lunar Society to Aston University for this lecture that we annually host with the Lunar Society. Um, like the Lunar Society, Aston University sees itself as a place where inquiring minds from Birmingham and beyond can meet, debate and come up with, solution, with solutions to critical problems facing, it all, facing us all. So we see a strong alignment between the University and we greatly appreciate the relationship we have with the Lunar Society. As I've said, this lecture, this lecture series is named after Sir Adrian Cadbury and I do acknowledge Sir Dominic Cadbury who is in the room. Um, and we have a great relationship with, with the Cadbury family, who have, of course, extremely prominent within Birmingham. Sir Adrian, brother of Sir Dominic, uh, was a member of the University Council for many years and was then Chancellor of this university from 1979 until 2004. That's right, 25 years, which I think is an you know, incredible level of service. He also participated in the academic program here. He taught in the business school. He was involved in undergraduate and postgraduate courses speaking in particular on governance, business ethics and corporate social responsibility. He was also active here as president of the Students' Athletic Union, which was appropriate, of course, given he was um, a distinguished sportsman in his own right, having represented Great Britain in the, in the Olympic Games as a rower in 1952. And Sir Adrian is also uh, fondly remembered by this university. He's been the, he is still the university's most gen generous philanthropist, and was chair of the university's development board from 2007 until shortly before his death. Uh, and his vision and leadership has contributed markedly to this university. Just as a closer for those, it's probably going to be dark by the time we leave at the end of this lecture, or maybe not. Uh, if you came in via Corporation Street, you'll actually see the new Sir Adrian Cadbury building at this university, which is our new student union, which we opened a couple of months ago. And it's a fantastic new facility and already much loved by our student body. <laughs> It is my great pleasure now to introduce um, Jackie Smith, known to all of us, I'm, I'm sure, uh, who in turn will introduce our guest speaker this evening. Jackie. Alec, thank you uh, very much indeed. And can I welcome everybody to the Sir Adrian Cadbury lecture on behalf of the uh, Lunar Society. I'm very proud to uh, be the chair of the Lunar Society, coming towards the end of my um, two-year period. Uh, a society, I think, which 
uh, d delivers its mission to stimulate ideas and to promote debate and to catalyse action. And of course, the Sir Adrian Cadbury Lecture is one of very many events that we organise during the course of the year, but one of our preeminent events, giving us the opportunity to hear from distinguished speakers on areas related to governance and accountability, uh, areas, of course, where Sir Adrian made such an important contribution uh, to the UK's business and, and wider uh, governance world. So you're very welcome to the lecture. I'm also extremely grateful for the support provided by uh, Aston University. This is a strong partnership now that we're developing between Aston uh, and the Lunar Society, for which I'm very grateful. I'm also very pleased, uh, as uh, Alex said, to welcome members of the Cadbury family and to recognise the very important support for uh, the lecture over a period of years from the George Cadbury Trust. So thank you very much indeed for that. It makes it possible for us to do um, events like this and to host uh, excellent speakers. So really, my job is to introduce Meg, and I'm enormously pleased that Meg accepted my uh, invitation. Somebody said to me earlier on, do you know Meg? Uh, and I said, yes, I consider her a friend, which is something given that she was part of my ministerial team when I was the Home Secretary. Uh, and I can say that she was an excellent uh, minister, uh, incredibly diligent and effective, particularly if I remember rightly, Meg, in ensuring our interests in European negotiations. <laughs> and, uh, uh, if only. Anyway, uh, we won't go down that particular route uh, this evening. But having had a, a distinguished career as the MP for Hackney South uh, and Shoreditch and uh, in government uh, as well, uh, Meg now chairs one of the most powerful select committees uh, and a particularly special uh, committee within Parliament. The Public Accounts Committee, I'm sure she'll say more about that, is the place where civil servants quake, where policies are um, scrutinised within an inch of their life, and the role of chair, elected as it is by, the, by all uh, MPs, is an enormously important uh, position in order to ensure the effectiveness uh, of government. So I'm really delighted that Meg has taken up our invitation today to talk about the role of the committee in holding government to account. And there will be an opportunity uh, at the end of Meg's lecture to ask questions. So I'm sure you'll be stimulated by Meg and get those questions bubbling for some interesting discussion later on. Meg, you are very, very welcome. Well, thank you, Jackie. And I think I just remember, you may not remember this, but when I arrived at the Land Office, um, I said to Jackie, um, forgive the indelicacy of my language, I looked at what I've been given to do as a minister, which is quite a wide range as a junior minister. Junior ministers do lots of, you, know, you don't know this until you become a minister, the range of things to deal with. I dealt with everything from marriage to animal experimentation with Europe and passports and identity cards in between. And I said to her, I think my job, Jackie, is to shovel the shit so it doesn't land on your desk. <laughs> and, but ultimately, if the chips are down, I'm with you. Uh, which actually probably puts me right outside the political panel uh, these days. That's the common approach. But anyway, I'm, as Jackie says, my name is Meg Hillier, and I'm really delighted to be here tonight. One of the things about being an active politician is always doing things. I mean, it's so nice to have a time, chance 
to think and reflect and kind of speak to a group of people who want to do that. And especially in Parliament at the moment, we're thinking and reflecting on a few things, but not uh, some of the bigger issues of the day. And as Jackie says, I've uh, been an MP for Hackney South Shore, which I've been doing that since 2005, but I've actually had elected office since uh, uh, 1994. Uh, I'm just trying to remember, I've done a few things along the way. So I've kind of had level, uh, office at different levels, local government, London government, and central government. And I now have this absolute privilege of chairing the Public Accounts Committee, and I'll explain a bit about that. But I'm really, I say, one of the reasons I said yes, actually, is frankly because of Jackie. When, when, you've had a, you're, when you have had someone to be your chief whip, you, you still quake when you get a call. <laughs> you, you don't quite know what happened if you say no. So the answer is a default yes. So I think Jackie's been a pretty damn good chair of the Lunar Society. You think it's all down to a chance, and you've got a little bit of But Jackie, if there was ever a female Home Secretary who deserved to be Prime Minister, it was you, not the one we currently got. But let me start by thanking the Lunar Society for inviting me to speak at the Sarajevo Cadbury Memorial Lecture in honour of a great leader and a great man who did so much for this city and this university. And it really is a matter of great prestige to be invited here. And I know that the Lunar Society does great work in bringing people together for serious debate and discussion, which is sorely needed, as I've said, at the moment. And you draw on the great tradition of the Lunar Society of the 1780s and 1790s, when you consider the talent and genius the Lunar Society could muster in this great city during that first industrial revolution, it's truly humbling that I'm here today. Scientists, inventors, entrepreneurs, they created new technologies, new institutions, new methods of production, and literally changed the world. If you consider Bolton and Watts steam engines, powering industries, reducing journey times across oceans, allowing humans to travel faster than the speed of a horse for the first time in 10,000 years. Or Benjamin Franklin, the American polymath and inventor who experimented with electricity. Or Josiah Wedgwood, who didn't just invent modern pottery, but also modern marketing, and whose anti-slavery campaign, of course, helped to end the ownership of and trade in human beings. And the thing that all these men had in common, and the women whose history is still to be written, is that they were creatures of the Enlightenment, Science, reason, democracy, and an end to religious bigotry, superstition, and ignorance. Those enlightenment values seem in very short supply today. I'm sure I'm not the first speaker to the modern day Lunar Society to point out the parallels between the first industrial revolution forged here in Birmingham and the so-called fourth industrial revolution, which is transforming our world. I suspect it may be even compulsory. Then it was the steam engine, factories and canals, Today, it's robotics, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, drones, and the rest. And I'm delighted, as an MP for Shoreditch, to really see at the heart of some of those new changes. These have a major impact on our economy and society, and the pressure on our institutions will be no less dramatic, I predict, then as now, being shaped by our technology. But I work in one of the least technological buildings in the country, where until recently, our listed telephone exchange was still in operation. And interestingly, it's actually rather missed. They brought to you anyone, that is Parliament. But I actually work in an institution that is falling into bits. It's not a metaphor. When I say the Palace of Westminster is full of holes, leaks, faulty wiring, and vermin, they are literally true. And I could talk to you about that if you want afterwards. But also, Parliament is an institution uh, that is under pressure from the weight of the events and the pace of change. And I don't want to mention the B word more than I have to tonight, 
I mean Brexit, not Boris. <laughs> <laughs> but even without the UK's departure from the European Union, the pressures on Parliament would be immense. We live in a world of instant gratification, instant music, instant shopping, instant information, a smartphone in our pockets with more computing power than in the Apollo missions. Parliament, by contrast, remains plodding, deliberative, seemingly always behind the curve. Though actually we see quite an interesting contrast between people elected in 2017 and even people as young as me. But we have an analog politics in the digital age, Betamax in the age of Netflix. The world is embracing 5G, and as I've said, we're still just about tying two cans together with a piece of string. And yet the role of Parliament has never been more important in steering the nation into this unknown future, in holding ministers to account, and providing, crucially, a voice for everyone in the country. The issue, therefore, of holding government to account and how it should be done is vitally important, and that's what I want to talk about now. Scholars tell us that the first forms of written language, for example, that of the Sumerians in Mesopotamia, were based on accounting methods for sheep, corn, and so on. Bookkeeping led to book writing, and so the idea of accounting for resources is almost as old as humanity. The Doomsday Book is an example of government taking stock of resources for the purposes of taxation. But the concept of accountability, scrutinising and holding people to account for their decisions over resources and expenditure, is newer and hotly contested. It's become a hurrah word, liberally scattered through speeches and documents, often without concrete definition or example. In my view, accountability needs to include three elements. The first is transparency, so that the light can shine into every dark corner of decision-making and we can see decision-making processes, the who, the what, and the why laid bare. Secondly, we need redress, so that people taking decisions know that if they waste public money, there is some sort of sanction beyond the opprobrium of the public. Back in Ghana, I chair, I'm delighted chairing the Public Accounts Committee Association for the Commonwealth. In Ghana, if you're a public servant and you are held to account for overspending money, if you want to appeal it, you have to put half the money into the bank before you go to court. Otherwise, you have to pay the fine, which is substantial. So, I, when I came back and told my committee members this, they were very keen on the idea. <laughs> might be my big moment as chair of the Public Accounts Committee. And the third thing that we need for accountability is actually impact. Because unless the things we do and the projects we deliver actually make a difference, and we're really failing at the very first hurdle. Everyone knows that Parliament does two things. It makes the laws and it holds the executive, that's the government, to account for its actions. The last function has become ever more important as the size of government has grown. A member of the Lunar Society in 1790 could live in the West Midlands largely untroubled by central government. There were draconian laws introduced after the French Revolution, but for the most part, the citizens of those times just got on with it. A member of the Lunar Society today has so many areas of life decided by ministers in London, from public health to public buildings to community schools, the speed limit, where and what you can smoke, and what time the pubs close, and so much else. And of course, that means governments are spending so much more, from the basics we expect from the state, defence and security, to the NHS, to universities, to roads and rail, to every kind of public service and public investment. And that money must be accounted for, and that's where the Public Accounts Committee comes in. The Public Accounts Committee is, as Jackie said, a select committee. These are very powerful in keeping the power of the people on their toes. 
Select committees in their current form were created in 1979, we're all celebrating the 40th anniversary this year, and since 2010, the chairs have been elected by MPs. PAC is a bit older, and I'll talk about that in a moment. Some of our select committees cut across policy areas, like mine, public accounts committee, or the Women and Equalities Committee, or the Science and Technology Committee. Others scrutinise the workings of the government departments, such as health and social care, exiting the EU, that's quite a torrid one, can hear them to manage. Uh, home affairs, or work on pensions. I'll tell you, I'm very proud of my committee. In fact, uh, Margaret Rodger and I are really very proud of that. We've never in the history that we can find ever had a minority report on the public accounts committee, so we really work hard to foster that cross-party working. It's more difficult on some committees, I think. And the members of the select committees are MPs or peers in the House of Lords. Um, we, we, don't, we have sometimes mixed committees, but not very often. And we can conduct inquiries, call witnesses, call evidence and issue reports. And my powers extend to calling people, papers and records. And it's very interesting, the other day, on Monday, uh, we had a, a session, yes, uh, yes, sorry, yesterday we had a session, and I wanted to see some documents. We've been given, the ones on in public were so redacted, they had about six words left in them. So as a committee, we've called to see those, and we will see those papers. So we have really, that's quite a big power, we can get nearly everything we want from government. Um, though they did try and fight it the first time, but as we never leaked, which has to be a record, I think, in, in, in Parliament. <laughs> That I get it a lot easier now, and my committee members have worked on that. But crucially, the key thing about our reports is the government's got to respond. So if we make a recommendation, they have to come back on that. Many of the chairs of committees these days are ex-ministers. Yvette Cooper, Hilary Benn, Nikki Morgan. I, as Jackie said, was a home office minister with her. And the idea, I think, behind that and why that's got traction, in fact, you know, Robert Alphon as well, he wrote he switched from being sacked as a minister to being a select committee chair in a matter of about four weeks, so it was incredible in this uh, case. But I think the, the poacher turned gamekeeper seems to have captured the imagination of other MPs who will elect us across the whole house. I think that when the idea is we're more likely to spot the sophistry and bypass the obfuscation and get to the truth. And um, I always seek out ex-ministers if I have a vacancy on my committee for that reason. Doesn't always work. Uh, sometimes it's like sitting through episodes of Yes Minister, for those of you old enough to remember that, and those of you who are younger, I recommend it. If you think of going into politics or government. But one official recently, well, one of the men, was so obfuscatory on the government's Brexit contingency plan that I accused him of having earned his knighthood in one appearance in front of the PNC. He didn't look very pleased about that. Actually, I think he may have later got it, but I'm never sure if the two are connected. Uh, one of the most powerful aspects of the select committee system is our ability to call witnesses to give evidence. These are often very powerful figures, and they're grilled crucially in public. Sometimes people say, we'd love to give you evidence in private, and I point to the word public and say, we are the public accounts committee. That's kind of the point. We do as little in private as we possibly can. Um, and sometimes it's been fantastic to have people come in and tell us their important story, but on our platforms, we're able to give them that oxygen. Uh, and we had, I think, the women from Whitehaven School, which is an academy in Whitehaven, where the parents got up in arms because every time they asked a question about the money being spent on their school, as they saw it falling down around their ears, they could get no answers. But they came to the committee and were able to tell their story, they were able to take it up. Other recent examples include the Culture Media and Sport Inquiry into Fake News, which included Cambridge Analytica's suspended chief executive. The Leave.eu donor, Aaron Banks, who walked out, of course, famously, and also executives and staff from Facebook. Uh, the Home Affairs Committee investigated the Windrush scandal, and it's you know, arguably the questioning of the Home Secretary, then Home Secretary, Amber Rudd, contributed to her downfall with Leonard Pastor Jackie. 
The ex-team EU Secretary of State, David Davis, admitted to the select committee there were impact assessments uh, being done, but when asked by Harvard to see them, he claimed they didn't exist. So people get caught out through select committees. And of course, in 2011, one of the other famous moments in our history is that the Culture, Media and Sport Committee summoned James and Rupert Murdoch and Rebecca Brooks to request to be questioned over phone hacking, and famously, Rupert Murdoch got a phone pie in the face. Not an action I condone, but it does prove two things. One, that powerful people turn up to select committees, and secondly, that members of the public can come and watch, and of course, increasingly now watching uh, online. I always know when there's a repeat on the telly, because suddenly my email box starts filling up with good things. So some people do watch us. But we know actually, don't, don't, I don't really tell everybody this, we no longer have the power to compel people to come. Uh, the last time Parliament used its power to imprison someone for not attending a committee was in 1880. But people don't know that. <laughs> and I had one interesting conversation with the chief executive of a very large private body. It was 15 years ago that this all started. No one around now knows about it then. So it's still the same company. Still have some responsibility, you know, a lot of taxpayers' money was wasted. And so I said there was a little room at the bottom of the Victoria Tower, I believe, where they were able to lock you up. At the time, I didn't know how to say it, it wasn't true, but still do it. Anyway, he came without. So it would be easier if he just came, and he did. Um, and the Institute for Government uh, calls our, which does, the Institute for Government is a think tank uh, based in London, but it's supposed to be really a think tank for politicians. And so it looks a lot at how Parliament works, and it calls our power smoke and mirrors, but the combination of that official summons and the media attention usually does the trick. Though, of course, uh, the sports director is a little, little less keen to come. In fact, when the select committee went to visit um, his uh, headquarters, they brought in a plate of sandwiches with microphones hidden in it to record the MPs as they discussed their tactics for the, for the meetings. <laughs> they were very proud it was so badly done, they were spotted straight away and they had a microphone sandwich. Don't tell you But when you're uh, Mike Ashley, uh, sports director, Dominic Cummings, the architect of Brexit, or Mark Zuckerberg, you kind of have to come. And of course, ministers and their civil servants must attend, or have a very good reason why not. And I think this ability to call witnesses is a very effective way to call people to account, especially those from private companies who would rather stay anonymous and not be asked about their tax affairs. In fact, one recent uh, occasion we had. Rupert Soames, brother of Nicholas Soames, who you may know the long-standing MP and the grandson or great-grandson of Chuck Churchill, I forget. But uh, Rupert Soames came in, and we, we don't always ask this question, but it was relevant to the hearing. How much do you earn? He pulled out his P60 and read it out to us. The other two were absolutely non-plussed and uh, were, were just not in the same class, shall we say. <laughs> but they, the best ones know what they might ask and get ready for it, and they know that they have to be open about it. And I would say, if you've got nothing to hide, what's the problem? We understand that life is complicated. Uh, things can go wrong, I'll get on to that in a moment, but you need to tell us. So we get the chance to shine the light into the darkest corners of the political and corporate world and expose secrets that some would rather we never knew. And sometimes, not getting evidence tells us that as well. So when I was looking at bank fraud, the banks just didn't want to send this information, so I was applying all my contacts and got some close to doing it, but what word came back that corporate they didn't want their name mentioned anywhere near public accountability report. So sometimes it's as revealing if people don't voluntarily cough things up about But one of our successes, and I put this down to Margaret Hodge, I became a member of the committee when Margaret Hodge was chair of the committee, is the way the public accounts committee has investigated corporate tax forms. This is a mandate we've taken up uh, on a battle we've carried on since. Um, and that has changed our understanding and really altered the narrative and hopefully will lead to a new and better laws to stop people like Amazon taking the mickey. 
Now, I represent a tech area, but I do think our tax laws have just not kept up with the world of e-commerce and so on. We're still pursuing those issues. And actually, we changed Margaret Hodge, I give her the credit really for it, for leading that through the committee, changed the world. So the Public Accounts Committee, as I said, is a bit different to other select committees. In fact, we were established by William Gladstone in 1861 after pressure from MPs including Francis Baring from the Baring's Bank family. And the first chair was the then member for Portsmouth South, which is funny enough where I grew up. Uh, that makes it the oldest select committee in the world. Uh, and I said to my members, the aim is that we're the best in the world as well. So we said our aim is high. But we're also, so that makes us the most senior across Parliament, and I'm often in touch with other chairs because my area of operation covers everything the government does pretty much, so I'm often collaborating with other chairs. In fact, we now have a new system, which Jackie won't know about, where we have members can guest from other select committees on the committee. So Caroline Flint is an excellent former minister, of course, very, very capable, very able, uh, long-standing uh, MP, and she went to guest on the committee because she was so knowledgeable about energy and climate change because she led for the Labour Party on that for many years. And so she, when they were looking at smart meters, she went in to give her knowledge, but also her understanding of the numbers, which we're particularly good at on the PAC. And I've got Stephen Twig, who chairs the um, development, uh, um, uh, International Development Committee. He's going to be guesting when we look at how development money is spent. Uh, we look at the money, here's the policy we're building coming and preparing with us. Um, so we, we look at those, uh, all that's all, we work across the committees. And I say we're the most senior in a way, but I feel it's very much a collaborative effort. And if you look back to 1861, there were about 30 officials in the Home Office then. <laughs> Wouldn't that be easy? Um, uh, but now, well, I, I think the last figure I have was 33,000 with Brexit. You know, it's just kind of going up all the time. All those civil servants that got sacked, they'll all be replaced, if not re-recruited. But um, and it's if you think about how much money had been spent up to 1861 by central government, though a lot of it was spent by the municipal government, it was an awful lot that was not scrutinised before the PAC was established. If you come into my office, uh, there's an array of photographs which Sir Edward Lee, who was one of my predecessors, uh, put up. Um, partly because one of them is his great-great-grandfather, or great, I can never remember how many greats, um, who uh, was a politician was progressive in his day because he thought it was not okay to beat your wife with a stick. <laughs> so uh, Ed Sir Edward Lee is incredibly proud <laughs> of that. But it, it, as well as having him as pictures of Harold Wilson, he chaired the committee famously when he was Shadow Chancellor and he wanted then to have space to meet people to hammer out future Labour policy. Uh, and in those days, MPs were crammed into four to a tiny room with a tiny desk each and no staff. And it wasn't really suitable, there was no court for his house, so spaces to meet. So I sit at the table where I'm sure he was hammering out some interesting things. John Barnett of the Barnett Formula fame, for those of you who studied that, and David Davis. Uh, and of course, I mentioned Margaret Hodge and Lee. Rather alarmingly, you realise when you're getting, getting old, when you've only got three living predecessors in here, well, I'm hoping that Sir Edward David, I never would, wouldn't expect again, Sir Edward David and Margaret live for some long time to come. I don't want to be the last left for some time yet. I'm also chastened uh, by the fact that two of my predecessors were assassinated. Um, though uh, apparently not in connection with the who was in the chair of the PNC. <laughs> that was always a fun first time. And if imitation is the best form of flattery, then we are very flattered that a number of other parliaments, in fact, most of the Commonwealth, have copied the PNC from Ireland to India, from New Zealand to South Africa. And we welcome a number of delegations. And I, as I say, chair the Commonwealth Association of Public Accounts Committees and learn a lot from, that, from them too. So, for example, in Uganda, they have a subcommittee that looks at security services spending. 
through Berkeley members. We didn't have an equivalent setup. So although I discussed with Dominic Reed, this is only what to look at. It's very, we, we don't have, sorry, Dominic Reed chairs the Intelligence and Security Committee, which is clear to do that, and how I'm through the search on that. But we don't have a system, which is a gap, which we haven't thought through even in all of these years. Um, but the problem with public accounts committees in many countries, and it's quite sober when we meet a delegation, we go and visit, is just basic corruption, graft, and cultures of backhanders, bribery, and downright embezzlement. And the smaller countries particularly have challenges with this. But the good news is that we don't really have a significant problem with corruption in the UK. The bad news is that the main problem we confront with our public accounts is incompetence. Governments and their agents are poor at negotiating, commissioning, contracting, project managing, and getting value for money. They could learn a little bit here from the business school at Aston University uh, with its world-class uh, status. And this incompetence seems particularly true of IT projects. I had a long list, but I've cut through it a bit because it would keep you here all night. Uh, so let's take the IT scheme, which was supposed to integrate the Department for Transport's Human Resources and Financial Services, and also save £57 million. It ended up costing £81 million due to management ineptitude, which the PAC described as a demonstration of stupendous incompetence. That's probably a mild report, uh, an IT system that was designed to allocate subsidies to farms was originally forecast to cost 155 million, but the program has ended up costing more than 215 million. Uh, the scheme was, has delayed payments to farmers and incurred increasing penalties from the European Commission. And our report on that said that the three key bodies trusted to deliver the program could not work together effectively. Its focus on developing a digital platform was inappropriate for farmers due to the broadband in many farming areas. So. That kind of is a clue about what often goes wrong. They just didn't understand that if you haven't got broadband, you can't do something online. So they had workaround systems from almost day one, as soon as it hit reality. And that's one of the biggest challenges. And if you want to know more about that, plug for Richard Bacon MP's book, because he was a member of the Public Accounts Committee for a heroic 16 years, um, and he wrote a book about it. So if you're a student wanting to know about it, he'll only interview you, let me interview you if you've read his book first, which is a clever tactic, I should remember. <laughs> Uh, and of course, there's everybody's favourite IT program, the NHS IT project. In September 2013, um, before I was on the committee, but before I was chair, an NHS patient record system that would have been the world's largest non-military IT system was scrapped in the most catastrophic IT failure ever seen by the government. The failed centralised e-record system cost the taxpayer over £10 billion. £3.6 billion more than ministers had anticipated. To see pain faces from the university thinking how you can spend that. Can I just tell you, can I remind you the figure again in case you thought I misspoke? 10 billion, with a B, 10 billion pounds. Uh, imagine if Josiah Wedgwood or Matthew Bolton had managed their businesses like that. Uh, they would not be public squares and statues to remember them, they would have ended up in jail. Imagine if Sir Adrian Cadbury had run his business like that. We certainly wouldn't be meeting in his honour this evening. And yet, Public servants, ministers and civil servants do it all the time and often without redress of any kind. Until we get the Benet system, they walk away from it without any uh, problem for themselves. And it's not just IT projects, there's also the famous story, and we'll have read about it only this week again, of the £285 million airport, which has only one small floor. Aeroplanes can't land there. <laughs> this was the Department for International Development which built the airport on St. Helena, which is a British overseas territory, using taxpayers' money 
and overlooked the fact that the vicious winds coming from the Atlantic rendered it pretty much useless. They could have had a clue because Charles Darwin had written hundred and something years ago about the problems of birds flying into the wind. So he'd identified the problem, but somehow the might of the British civil service couldn't get it right. Uh, of course, we never sent Helena. Uh, Esther McVeigh mentioned it uh, just yesterday, somewhere overseas, I think is what she said. So, uh, and it wasn't actually, it was from the department, but actually St. Helena, I should just correct her, it's a British overseas territory, so it's not actually international aid. On a small note of fact, St. Saint, Saint people who live on St. Helena are known as saints, and there are more saints in Swindon than there are on St. Helena. The reason, there was a good reason, but behind the idea of the airport. There's only 4,000 people living in St. Helena, and it becomes unsustainable. People have to travel on a steamship to get anywhere. They work in the oil industry, and it's a three-week journey to get home and back. And so health problems, of, uh, you know, the health problem will just keep families together to be very problematic. So a whole other area of interest there. Um, so uh, then, yes, I mean, where are they? I have such a long list I could read to you, but don't get me started on seaborne freight. Uh, remember that? And already we're hitting the deadline for the next contract that we might have to let because the 31st of October is living. I know we're a lot more about ferries. Actually, I did used to work for P&O ferries on cross channel ferries. I was a bit like John Prescott, you know, P&O woman. And as I say on my CV, um, I fronted the purse's office. I was also a hostess on a cross channel ferry. It just depends on your perspective. Tip to the young ones in the room. Depends how you describe it. But that's yeah, the ferry company with no ferries. Uh, given the contract, and we have we actually got the smoking gun, the contract was given before they even had a letter of comfort that they would be allowed to use someone else's ferries. Unbelievable. And Chris Gray, when someone stands up and answer comments, and I said to him, I said, When did you have the letter of comfort? And he said five times very fast, Christmas time, Christmas time, Christmas time. But the man is lying. I have five brothers, by the way, which is one of the best ways of being skilled in Parliament to deal with all men. Uh, of every time, because if you've got five problems, you're pretty much have it in places. Um, uh, and I understand that during the recent spate of people throwing milkshakes at politicians, Chris Gray tried to throw one at himself and missed. <laughs> it's not just incompetence. Uh, we see repeatedly uh, optimism bias, silent mentality, short term thinking. Uh, no institutional memory, uh, a real issue around capability, and what I call fadism, we set a target, we have an initiative, and things change over time. I call these the seven deadly sins. So if you take, let me just give some examples, optimism bias, a recent very big uh, example of that is Crossrail, so a fantastic railway line going through the heart of London and beyond, uh, a bit London focused, but nevertheless extremely important, and will uh, take 17% of something of London's passengers when it's built. And suddenly, with a few months to go, Queen Elizabeth booked to cut a ribbon. They found that they were not going to be able to deliver it for at least uh, eight months. It's now going to be two years later than several uh, million pounds over budget. Um, and yet, when we visited it the week before our inquiry, we still had staff saying, we think we could have done it. And we go, how? You know, we looked, I won't go into all the detail, but we looked at all the detail of the integration of all those complex systems they just had not pulled through. And they just believe because it's a snazzy, beautiful project, and it will look great during London when it's open. Do go and have a look. That that gave them such belief it would happen. Silent mentality. We see, for instance, the sale of government land. We're looking at that quite a lot at the moment. And lots of issues there. But one is that a department will sell land, and it might not be sensible because it might have actually been rather good for another department. 
Uh, silo mentality also leads to cost shunting, which I'm going to talk about in a moment. Short-term thinking, um, well, the most infamous one we've been looking at again recently, 20 years on, that my current deputy um, is Sir Geoffrey Clifton-Brown, he was on the Public Accounts Committee when the infamous Addington Homes deal was done. The Ministry of Defence leased all its housing to a private company that's still making a mint out of the taxpayers, got to be renegotiated, but still belongs to Addington. And uh, it is, Geoffrey and I, you're... Smile, smile, we have a smile, we have a laugh, we cry really, that he was on the committee raising concerns about it 20 years ago. They have been, and here we are raising concerns about it again. Um, and that is an example, though, that that was a short term fix at the time that has led to problems for the taxpayer for over 100 years. So that is really short term thinking with a long term tail. Uh, no institutional memory. Um, this is an interesting one, and um, Jackie may remember, or she might have not been there at that point, but when in 2009, after the crash, um, there was a problem, I was a passport minister, we saw, I used to get metrics every week about passport applications, so, you know, someone's watching when you apply for your passport, and we noticed there was a very big dip against the trend, because trends, you know, basically in the summer, just with all the summer, you expect an uplift, you don't get many people applying for passports in November, um, and we can see it going down. So we had a bit of a power, so something's wrong here, what's going to happen, what's happening. And we realised that people were not renewing their passports, austerity is beginning to buy them. If the banking crash can happen, people worry about the future. You can't afford to run for a day, well, why are you renewing your passport if you're not travelling? You don't need it. So we thought, ah, so this means at some point when things get better, obviously people want to go on holiday, they'll renew their passports in one bigger lump, perhaps. There might be a bulge that comes through, we need to be prepared for that. And then, only a few years later, that happened when we were no longer in government. Um, and it was really interesting that I was the institutional memory of that moment because nearly everybody else in the system had moved on. And if I'd been in a different seat, so I'd gone. Um, and it was actually, I don't blame, so I don't blame the Mr. James uh, Brokenshire particularly. It's just, Theresa May was Home Secretary. She had a Liberal Democrat, which was Norman Baker at the time. So the two, can you imagine, if you know either of those characters, would not have them. She wouldn't have trusted him with anything. She was known to hold things close. So she trusted James Brokenshire. So by that point, he was dealing with security, immigration, passports, I think Europe too. I mean, anything important was in his back, which is unpleased as well. It was incredible. I don't know how he managed it all. So no wonder he missed the passport thing. So I don't entirely blame his overload. But anyway, that is a really interesting thing about government, about turnover. Capability, um, well, a huge issue, and um, um, I'm going to touch on that in a moment. And then what I call fadisms is target setting, for example, or reorganisations. So you can end up with perverse incentives um, where everyone's chasing the latest fad and losing sight of actually what you're trying to deliver. Um, one of those examples is breast cancer screening. I mean, that's a very clear target issue. So in my own area, we're seeing a real problem with breast cancer screening where there's a bulge and people have not been seen quick enough. So to, in order to meet the targets, which is that every woman between 50 and 70 should have no longer than 36 months between their breast cancer screening. So that means that if you've had one, you, the clock starts ticking for your 36 months, and many women are going into over 48 uh, months to, to get them. So they're trying to bring that down. In bringing that down, they're missing out all women aged between 50 and 53. Because if you're between 50 and 53, you don't count. As somebody who's just recently entered that special interest group, I have a particular concern. But actually, and then the worst thing is that we are now seeing in my area a trend of more women presenting in that age group with symptoms of uh, breast cancer. Uh, so there we go. So they're chasing one target, and it ends a very perverse outcome. 
And a failure in any one of these things, it happens. Now, I'm here at Aston, you have a great business school. You must be teaching all of those who come through about how to deal with problems. So one failure is manageable, but the real horror stories are when they get complex. We have multiple failures. And of course, failure is always an orphan, which I suppose is for like, might be the eighth, the deadly sin. So something is going to go wrong with nearly every major project. Uh, anyone who thinks it's not has never had to get close to a project. <coughs> Things go wrong if you have an extension built to your house, let's face it, or a new kitchen put in. But if you take it on a national level, there are bigger risks. You can reduce some of those risks by better planning. You can even plan for some of the known potential failures. So you can have uh, plan Bs down the line up to a point. So you can plan for those risks. And you can think about how you respond better when things go wrong. So as I say, plan for the risk. Optimism bias, though, will tell you to battle through. Uh, the emergency services network is one good example of this. This is replacing something called airwave. This is how emergency services communicate with each other. Um, and it was there to replace <coughs> a system because when the London bombings happened, you couldn't communicate well underground. So this is going to be using the mobile network. Now, if I tell you that it's world-beating, groundbreaking, the only place in the world that's going to be doing this, that begins to warn you that it might be a bit challenging. South Korea had a little bit of it, and if South Korea is only doing a little bit of it, it tells you it's a big problem, isn't it, really? We've had them eight times in front of the committee telling us it's going to go fine, and it's now way over budget and way over date, um, because they just kept believing, like Crossrail, kept believing would happen. And the civil service is not very good at coming clean. There's no real reward for saying, I think this isn't going to work very well, um, which is a big problem. And the final thing that can really screw things up is time. Things change and you can't predict. All you can predict is that you can't predict something. So if you take uh, 2010, capping of pension contributions, a great George Osborne ticking time bomb, less so many uh, lying around, that has led to a big crisis in the NHS, which has hit the news in the last couple of weeks, but actually was first raised by the Public Accounts Committee in around 2012. If you restrict the pension pot, uh, then you're going to actually start hitting certain highly paid public sector workers and others quite sooner than you think. And we were seeing then doctors thinking about leaving, and we were going, we must have good pensions. You know, we worked out that pretty obvious point, they couldn't just walk away with no income. The NHS denied it then, when 2019, and they're about to do a deal on it now, because we are losing not just doctors, but other senior people, and not just in the NHS, but that's just one example. Technology is obviously a big change. Uh, in, Jack and I were in government sounds like it sounds like a long time, um, and if you think of the changes just in that decade, um, what a different landscape we're in. Um, you know, my daughter, who's 10, doesn't even really know what a mouse is. I mean, I'm a, a computer mouse. And she just, because she's just not used to, she's used to holding a smartphone and refuses to let her have her own, she knows exactly. And what is interesting, actually, I'm going to this thing, slide aside. If I plug in my PIN number, she can read that. And you think it's secret, but a 10-year-old, has got the developed skill to see a pin number on the memory. You know, and I think that's amazing. And when I, I was dealing with ID cards, when Jackie and I were at home office, we were, I was, when I was doing, Jackie was dealing with it, I was doing some of the, the graph going around the country, and find land with no to ID, who trusted the passport service. But actually, in some ways, Jackie, I think they were outdated before we started, because the fingerprint or other biometrics would have been quicker and easier, and now so much of this is online. And so that's one of the problems, actually, with government. We go slowly, we make decisions, we work up a policy idea, you get it through your party, you get it through the electorate, you try and bring it into place, you're trying to bring it in, but it's other competing priorities, other competing departments, the Treasury says no. So by the time you get there, 
we're already quite out of date. We move very fleet of foot. So we have helped ourselves in, in government and parliament, but um, the technology has been changed. And if you look at universal credit, and a really good example there, something that's been talked about that at length, but, but it's, taken, it's, taken, it's a, such a long term program that it didn't really take account of the way that work has changed more zero hours, contracts, flexible working, the things that make it real people's complicated lives do not work with a system very well like universal credit. So these are all problems, uh, and all of this informs how we work as a committee. So we have to, I recognise the challenges that civil servants face, but I still, we still obviously have to hold them very firmly to account, not recognising some of these things themselves, frankly. And so I have three things I bear in mind when I approach an inquiry or a witness. The first, uh, and I've been saying this since I was first elected as chair of the PAC, is that we are not talking about government money. I refuse, I ban the phrase government money. It's the public's money. Government is the guardian and custodian, but the cash belongs to the people. And I know from my own constituency, in Hackney South of Shoreditch, how hard people work. But my constituency is now quite divided. There are those who work four days a week because they can afford to work four days a week. And there are those who are doing three or four jobs on minimum wage and just about getting by, maybe but barely getting by. But they work weekends, and some of them, as I say, are working several jobs. So they don't love paying taxes. We pay our taxes in the hope and expectation that that money goes on the things that civilise our communities and make life better for everybody. So my alpha and my omega is that every single pound wasted is a pound stolen from public services. Every tenner wasted on a failed IT project or an airport without planes is a tenner that could be keeping a library open or a teaching assistant at work. And the second thing is that it's not the first question that you ask that matters, it's the second or the third or the fifteenth. So we work hard to prepare, so actually we never ask very often, we'll find we ask the first question and then quickly jump to the fifteenth because we've worked out where, where we want to take it. Um, but most of the people who are here before us are highly skilled communicators. Uh, someone like Simon Stevens, Chief Executive of the NHS, is a real showman. He always tries to get his points across. Can I just say, Chair, the great life is? And I say, no, you can't. And he'll try, can I just, and he'll keep trying, and he just tries to talk, he literally talks over me. Um, sometimes I just give in because it'll be quicker than having the argument. But regardless of the question, he will always try to get the last word in. Uh, always, I think, feels, he wants to tell us the good things about the NHS, which I suppose in this position is a fair point, but our job is to get out the issues of the day. But watch it next time he's on if you want to know how to uh, play, try and play uh, External witnesses, which witnesses are usually coached. Uh, there are companies you can hire to train you on how to appear in front of the select committee. I think it's lucrative business with some of my former colleagues. Um, so the questioning we do has to be, <laughs> to be dogged, determined, we take to Jackie. Maybe make sure we're making a lot more money <laughs> as a result. Uh, we do dogged, determined, forensic, and informed. Um, and we have to know how to properly interrogate a piece of information, how to get past the facade and the heart of the matter. One of the delights of our committee is that the National Audit Office supports a lot. It does the work to get a report and agrees the numbers with the department. The department has to agree that the figures in the report are accurate, which means one of the reasons, as a cross-party committee of MPs, we don't spend a lot of time arguing about the numbers is because we know there's an agreed set of numbers. Otherwise, we could, just, we could spend the first hour over a meeting arguing whether they only listed 10 billion or was it 9.6, yeah, which would take us off the main focus. Um, and I keep insisting that we go at those walls of obfuscation like Jericho and break them down because it's really, really annoying. Um, in fact, I was saying to Jack and Wayne, we're now um, so frustrated, are we, with some of the obfuscation. We're doing some events, particularly for women. Uh, there's a paucity of women civil servants still. Um, so I've been working with the Permanent Secretaries of Champion for Diversity in Whitehall. We're going to get more coming in to understand, really, that we are, we are ogres. We are just doing our job and asking questions. 
But if you give us a straight answer, you'll get out of the room quicker and it'll be better for you in the long run. So we're trying to, to foster an openness. And the third thing that I always have in mind uh, is that somebody, somewhere, is responsible and they must be held to account. One of my first questions is, who's responsible? And that you get what I call um, public accounts committee tennis. Because everyone looks at each other and nobody wants to jump up. And then you'll get, these days, I think I've got, I'm known to ask that question, so, so probably somebody will just kind of track these training them. It says, the purpose of the public sector is, well, of course, I'm ultimately responsible. It was a qualifying word, right? Well, you know, what is it? You're either responsible or you're not. I mean, and actually, you know, that, that, that frustrates us even more. So there's a tip, Jackie. Tell them to stop saying that. Um, and the problem with our system of public administration is that the people who take the decision are not the people who implement it. And the people who start a project are very rarely the people who finish it. If it goes wrong, the people at the end can blame the people at the start, and the people at the start know they won't be around when there's a failure. And typically, the parent secretary lasts three or four years. Once they've got their knighthood, you know, it's 12 months, 12 or 18 months before they're gone. Uh, and the knighthood helps them get the next job. Um, a few, well, no, not many, actually, so there's a single day, day at the moment, so it's only knighthoods as it goes at the moment. Um, and failure, as I said, is an orphan. And this is a product of our system of civil service moving rapidly around departments, which can be good for, for some aspects of civil service work, understanding how that all works, but it makes them damn hard to pin down. And of course, it's the product of ministers being reshuffled or, or losing elections. So it's not always easy. But I'm keen to hold people to account for what they've done, regardless of whether they've moved on, retired, or taken a job in the private sector. We had a mandarin from the Treasury who'd gone to work in a very big private sector job, and they pointed him back in New York. So we did. We had a little bit of negotiation, but we said, well, these are the options, and he was in New York, so he had to come back. And I think his, I don't know if he told his employer, but I think he hopefully told him he had to do it. Um, and we moved, it's retired as hard, but for anywhere in the civil service, at one point, it was, though it sadly was the 22nd of March, uh, 2017, so we had that attack on Parliament where P.C. Keith Palmer was murdered. So, but we had, we were about to start a session of three former, former and current permanent secretaries of the department, what was the Department of Energy and Climate Change now bids, who were all responsible for a project over through the Green Deal. Um, in the end, just to get it organised, we only had the current uh, representative, but that was an example. I, I mean, it was a real shame that we go ahead uh, for that reason. Well, one, though I really what I've got to do is put a tag on my migratory birds so that they don't want to track them down, but that's another plan. You can hear all my secret plans, but I'd really like to do. So let me just move on quickly to, before I finish, just some of the challenges ahead. Um, the first, I think, is that government is more complicated. There are more devolved matters, more arms-length bodies. We get the bonfire of the uh, mangoes. They're growing from the flag of Phoenix from the ashes at the moment, they will, especially if we leave Europe. More private companies delivering public services like train journeys and a growing length between ministers and the chain of decisions, which culminates in a new bus station in Birmingham or whatever. And as well as the seven deadly sins, there are more deliberate barriers to our work. The British state is complicated, like a matrix of organisations and agencies, and it's really hard to keep an eye on things. One of the bugbears of the committee is what I call cost shunting, where ministers pass the cost of a service onto someone else, like local government's hydrogen picture. We're constantly following the money, a bit like Elliot Ness, <laughs> follow the money. But a couple of examples of this, mental health cuts, the police pick it up, uh, social care cuts, the NHS picks it up. Um, so uh, be wary of the permanent secretary or the minister that offers up cuts in their department early because actually they're just passing the problem down the line to someone else. And there is no system in government for looking across government at those, those issues. And it's a real weakness. And it's a weakness that every party reinvests in every time they're elected because we all see things in silos far too much. And it's harder to sell the electorate, frankly. 
Another major challenge is secrecy. People behind me behind, uh, missed a forest of data. We had Melanie Dawes of MHCRG in this week. And she said, well, we're, we're not sure we're going to publish the annual report, which has been delayed it was two and a half years since the previous one. That's not what your annual report said. Um, and it was apparently because ministers get changing. Uh, so she said, well, it's right, we'll put the data out there. And so I pushed her, I said, look, putting the data out there is a bit useless, isn't it? As you know, like us, we're a bit geeky, we might go look for the data, we might remember to look for it, we might know where to find it. But the average citizen won't know unless you flag it and wrap it into an annual report. And I think hopefully she got the point, we'll wait and see and we'll keep on to her on that. But they, there's this deliberate use of data hiding uncomfortable truths, or a set of phrases we hear designed to hide it as well, security considerations. Everything is a security consideration. I mean, Jackie dealt with real ones. Uh, commercial sensitivity, and so on. Um, and as a former Home Office Minister, I know reports like that because we need to protect the information and the people who hold it. But we do think sometimes we, we were going to set up a public accounts committee bingo. Well, we heard some of these phrases, um, and I was giving my own to charge. <laughs> I'm tempted to sell them to the audience in the room uh, because it really is uh, like watching a reel, a film reel. And the third challenge is the ongoing lack of expertise inside government when it comes to negotiations, contracts, and accounting. This is a really serious problem. There's a lack of business acumen, and one obvious solution is closer links to business schools like Aston, uh, and more porosity between the civil service and the world of business. But oh, if you are outside the civil service and you come in, the wagon circle, and you look at any civil servants who came in from outside, they don't last long, they just don't quite fit the mould, and you know, they really um, got some common core calls with quite small group people on this. But there is an link with Sine Business School in Oxford, but it's one course of high-level civil servants, and I think it starts. At first, it's quite crazy, but now I'm thinking, well, it's a bit narrower, isn't it, just to have one setup? And actually, we need to be looking far wider than that. Um, and of course, it's very civil service to go to Oxford first. That tells you everything, really. Uh, so it's a start, but we're not there yet. So maybe there's a growth bid for Aston uh, on that one. Now, just to finish off, but, you know, Parliament does get a bad press. What you see on the television, especially with the pantomime of the Prime Minister's questions, gives a very poor and entirely false view of the work of Parliament. Although we've been televised since the 1990s, I don't claim people they don't tune in to watch the Public Accounts Committee or the Select Committees. Yeah, it's a couple of hours, potentially. Uh, and yet here, in those rooms, in those committee rooms, some of the most important work is done to hold government to account. There's no way you can really hide when you're a subject to repeat questioning. Uh, I think people are largely unaware, though, but if they knew, I feel it would help to rebuild trust in Parliament. And part of my job, the job of the chair, was to make sure that we keep this robust facet of our system going and make sure people are aware of it. <coughs> and the big picture here, you know, we, we can talk about the intricacies, intricacies of the committee, is that with populism on the rise, we need to restore and restate the value of parliamentary democracy. We need to make the system work for the people. We need to reconnect the people and democratic politics. Publicly holding people in power to account is a really vital part of that. I hope I've given you a flavour of what it's like from my side of the table. Um, so I'll give you some tips, especially for those young ones here who may appear in front of us as mandarins in the future. <laughs> but as I said at the beginning, it's a real privilege to be here, so thank you very much. And can I once again thank uh, the George Cadbury Trust for supporting us uh, with being able to host this uh, lecture and also Aston University for your partnership in helping us to do it. And can I, of course, encourage people, members, non-members, lapsed members, to come to other Lunar Society events as well. Uh, on June the 25th, we have an event at another university in Birmingham uh, where we have Professor Simon Schapper 
delivering a lecture on the Lunar Society and the European Enlightenment. In July, on the 11th of July, uh, we have our AGM. Um, please, uh, particularly if you're interested in being actively involved or in influencing what happens next year, please come to our AGM, which is at the Library uh, of Birmingham and is followed by the opportunity for members to have a private viewing of the um, James Watt Bicentenary Exhibition, uh, which will be opening in the uh, library, and which is another very important project of the Lunar Society this year and that we're uh, supporting. We might take a little break over the summer, but in September, I'm not making any judgment of anybody in this room, but we have an important event on the challenges of ageing. Um, particularly the challenges of ageing in uh, social care, which will be held at yet another university uh, in uh, Birmingham on September the 18th. Information about all of these on our website, along with information about how to uh, join us. Thank you very much indeed for your attendance and for your questions, and I hope we'll see you at further Lunar Society events in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this Lunar Society podcast. And thank you also to the George Cabry Fund and Aston University Birmingham for their kind support of the Sir Adrian Cabry Lecture Series. <laughs>